Welcome to the Real Estate Addicts Podcast. This is episode 35 with your hosts, Mark Savatsky from Choose Boston. Ray Herto, HRV Homes. Dan Rubin, HRV Homes. And we're joined today by our guest. Carrie Tennant with the Community Builders, formerly of NOAA. Welcome to Real Estate Addicts Global Headquarters. Thank you. Excited to be here. A lot of trusts coming in today. <laughs> yeah, there was. Uh, some of the co-hosts were asking me, how did I know Mark? And I said, well, we met like about two weeks ago. He gave me an address and told me to show up. And when I was talking to some of my coworkers, they were like, how well do you know this guy? And I was like, could be just his basement. Not, not sure, but it turns out to have been a, a real podcast. So this I'm, is I'm legit- thrilled. It is. I mean, yes. for our viewers, for our listeners. Yes, it's a real studio, everyone. So you can trust that if you're asked <laughs> to be a guest on this show. And Carrie is a lawyer. So <laughs> just know that you can be disbarred for making <laughs> false un- yeah. Yes, false statements. Yeah. Yeah. Nice. So <laughs> Assistant General Counsel with the Community Builders. Correct. You guys focus on capital A, affordable housing. Correct. And what um, do you mean by capital yeah, can we, A? Uh, pause there. Yeah, we're so, already in alphabet So lowercase affordable housing, uppercase affordable housing. Yeah, so affordable housing in the context of the community builders really means that we're operating in the space of low income housing tax credits. We do um, engage in some some mixed income properties as well, but our primary mission is certainly trying to leverage affordable housing, capital A, affordable housing, Mm. for as many kind of folks um, and as many communities as we can. So TCB's portfolio actually stretches, let's say, as far to the west as Chicago and as far south as the Carolinas currently. I guess I think by capital A, affordable housing, you're referring to low-income housing tax credits. Yes. So As opposed to just like inexpensive stuff that's within people's budget and reach, <laughs> sure. which is just generally affordable and <laughs> yeah. doesn't exist very often. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. In Boston's market, I'm not sure if small A affordable housing <laughs> exists anymore. It's kind of a, a unicorn. So that distinction is somewhat lost on me. But yeah. So primarily the work that I focus on as assistant general counsel It's a transactional role. So what I'm working on is assisting our project managers in closing deals. So closing on low-income housing tax credit deals. So you'll hear that referred to sometimes as lie tech or tax credits, Um, but it all really means the same thing. And it's a federal program, which was created in 1986 as a way to encourage private investment in affordable housing. So the way the tax credit program works is if your project gets an allocation of tax credits, then you're able to have a private investor come into that project and use that equity to develop the affordable housing. And as Mark alluded to, there will be deed restrictions and certain kind of strings attached to ensure that that project continues to be low-income housing for a certain period of time. Typically yeah. 30 years. I mean, I think we're really excited to get into the details of all that. I think we were joking before we went on today, just that um, I feel like we sometimes need job retraining, like uh, folks in on assembly lines mm-hmm. in uh, Detroit. It's just market rate development is becoming increasingly difficult um, to get projects approved, to get the support you need. And uh, there's a really strong impetus for further affordable housing. And so I feel like it's 
if you understand the ropes and how to put a deal together with things like low-income housing tax credits, you can be a pretty powerful developer and uh, also do good. So so just, in, just yeah. maybe step one quick question as far as the, the process goes, right? So is the entitlement process other than where the funds are coming from the same for an affordable project? Then, you know, if I want to develop 40 units uh, downtown or I wanted to be- develop 40 affordable units downtown, do I have to still go through the same zoning, zoning yeah. process? Yeah, no special zoning consideration So you do still have to go through the same zoning process. And in fact, zoning is one of the sort of big impediments at times to getting a tax credit reservation because one of the most important things to actually being successful in getting a reservation of tax credits, and when I talk about a reservation, I'm talking about 9% tax credits. I don't know how deep into the weeds we want to go here. I definitely want to talk 4% versus 9%, what those mean. Sure. Yeah. So you apply for these low-income housing tax yep. credits, and there's two garden varieties, yep. 4% credits and 9% credits. And these are federal tax credits. Federal tax credits. Mm-hmm. The 4% credit will allow you to fund up to 30% of construction right. or renovation costs. Sure, yep. So you could be renovating a project. So that would mean you're probably acquiring an existing building and planning to renovate it. You could do that regardless of whether it had been you know, affordable housing already in the past, or if it had previously been market rate units that have just been sort of dilapidated. And the flip side is a 9% tax credit reservation, also a federal tax credit. And I keep saying federal because there are Massachusetts state tax credits as well. So a 9% tax credit is oftentimes a more attractive option from a developer's standpoint, because it certainly subsidizes more of your project costs. So that means you you know, less sources overall, right? When you're talking about a 4% deal, that's never going to subsidize the entire construction cost. A 9% tax credit will pay for up to 70% of eligible costs. So eligible construction or renovation costs. So the the 9% tax credit, yes, is designed to subsidize about 70%. Also, why do they call them 4% 9? Why not 30% and 70%? Because... It's confusing. (laughs) The way that it works, to add another layer of confusion, the 4% tax credit is not actually on a day-to-day basis effectively a 4% tax credit. So the 9% tax credit is fixed by statute at 9%, but the 4% tax credit fluctuates from day-to-day, somewhere in the high threes. So that's set by an external index. High 3% of, of, maybe I just don't even understand. So these percentages, is what yeah. you're saying is this is just debt that a developer would receive. That whatever, so, if you get $100,000, you're responsible for 9000 a year. Is that uh, no. a good understanding or is that completely wrong? <laughs> wrong. So, <laughs> well, I think, I think I this think is what a, we need to dive into. I don't know a, either, Ray, but I'm a, just I think it's to make a, a sound effect. I've... <laughs> You need a button. (laughs) I need a button. Give me a button. No, I'm teasing. I think I have failed to explain well the sort of overarching framework. No, no, no. We're asking too many questions too quickly. Yeah. Yeah, we're bouncing. So, so the- Very curious though. Yeah. So just to back up high level, the way that tax credit projects work, federal LIHTC projects work, is you actually form a single purpose entity to own that project. 
So you are responsible for all of your development costs and all of the operational costs. Um, so, so far, we're very familiar with that. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm good. Same. Continue. Right, we're on the same page. You're like, I've done that before. Yeah. You're like, get to the good part where it starts getting better for me. So you form a single purpose entity and your investor becomes a partner in that single purpose entity. So who Could, would the investor be? Like a company that yeah. has big tax uh, liabilities Banks, because insurance they've made companies. a ton of money this exactly. past year? Exactly. Correct. Cool. Okay. Yeah. So, so we get, is it an actual company or like a fund? Sometimes they form a fund. Okay. So there can be an, and then there can be an upper tier investor even mm-hmm. above your investor. But sometimes it is just big name company that you've heard of before, you know, uh, big bank, big insurance company. Sometimes they form single purpose entities to act as these limited partners for liability And reasons, so you right? sell them the deal. You're like, I have this building. It's exactly. going to do phenomenal. Just well. like you would with any investor. Okay. Yep. So, and, and there's brokers that you can... We call them syndicators. Syndicators. Yes. Okay. So yeah. we, and a syndicator can put you in touch with Correct. profitable company X. Yep bank, yeah, et cetera. Okay. Exactly. Yeah. So you form the single purpose entity, typically an LLC at this point, but a lot of them used to be limited partnerships before LLCs came into vogue. So form this single purpose entity, your ownership entity that you as the developer have formed or whoever, I mean, the owner and the developer don't necessarily have to be the same entity, but a single purpose entity will act as the limited partner, which will eventually own 0.01% of the deal hmm. and the but but can maintain control can be the day-to-day manager and have you know the decision making authority but your investor member which is actually technically the limited partner will own 99.99% of the deal and the reason for that is because when the tax credits are allocated to your deal then the only way for those credits, the losses effectively to flow to your investor is through the vehicle of that limited partnership or why, LLC. Why do you call it a loss? You say so, the loss. So yeah, this, because this, it offsets their tax liability. So to them, it's a loss. But I this see. development deal is intended from the get-go to produce a huge loss? Yes. Explain that. Loss. <laughs> yeah, because they, they're making all the gains that they want to offset mm-hmm. by the exactly. loss. Exactly. That's yep. why they're investing Oh, because in they're the just deal. pumping money into this thing. Yes, they're investing. They're putting their equity in and what they're taking out is effectively, you know, to simplify it, a loss. To that be is able to the... Tax credit terminology. Yeah, that's the So they're not expecting to ever get that money back. No. Well, Uh, I mean, they're getting it back in the sense of it, you know, offsetting their taxable liability, right? Because if they didn't have that loss, then they would have had to pay higher taxes. If they donate, you know, or invest $2 million in, they're not getting $2 million back. They'll get it off their tax sheet. That's fine. Okay. Exactly. So far, you know, we've established, we found a project, we've established you know, the investor or we've reached out and we've to the syndicator and gotten an investor and they own 99.99% of the deal. The developer, which would be us, owns 0.01% of the Mm -hmm. deal. So what's the next steps in terms of going, moving forward, other than going through the entitlement process, which we've, you know, talked about in previous podcasts, how do you start the tax credit process at this point? Well, can I just jump in real quick also? Are we fully funded at this point? Is that it? Well, <laughs> yeah. no. have, we, have we raised everything we need? I wish. No, we, we have some deals that have 11 different sources, 12, 17 different sources. So depending on the, you know, sort of overall cost of development in the market that you're operating in, Boston has one of the higher 
I'm sure you guys are familiar, costs for developing around here, cost of labor is higher, cost of materials are higher, just because we're in a uh, busy financial center. So your tax credits are not going to cover your entire development costs. So you are going to have to seek other sources of funding. So federal tax credits, especially a 9% award, right, can get you a, a decent you know, bit of the way there towards your TDC, your total development costs. But in every deal I've ever worked on, there have been other types of sources. So different things that can come in to fill the gap, as we call it. There are Massachusetts state tax credits that you might be eligible for. There are historic tax credits if you happen to be renovating an historic building. Brownfields credits if you happen to be renovating um, or operating in a space that was previously polluted. And then the state of Massachusetts has a lot of other, I mean, we're very fortunate to be operating in this market because our our state government and the city of Boston's government is really behind affordable housing and puts a lot of dollars out on the table every year for projects that are, that are you know, able to show that they're financially feasible. How and much? Ready. What would that dollar amount be? Oh, I wouldn't know off the top of my head, but it's a lot. It's mm. significant. I mean, it's it's high higher in the state of Massachusetts than probably most other markets other than perhaps New York or California. Tens of millions, hundreds, hundreds of, of millions. Hundreds of millions yeah. of dollars. Yeah, so, we're very fortunate that our, our governor and, you know, our mayor and all of the, the fine folks that are working for them are really behind developing affordable housing and have, have put a lot of money out there. So... And I would be, I think, remiss if I didn't say that um, it's not as simple as just finding your investor, right? So you, you do have to go through an application process in order to receive an award for 9%. Is that the one stop? That's the one stop. Okay. Yes. So the federal government... I'm going to lose my seat on the NOAA board. For, uh, <laughs> I thought you didn't know anything, It's Mark. a community development corporation. <laughs> yeah. So let's say we have the, we found the land. Yep. Or a viable project. Yep. And now do what? we just, like you you now were kind what? of leading into it. Yep. So we apply and how? what's the turnaround well, time? Sorry, what's the process? So, sorry, go back. So we can let Carrie answer too. Do you entitle the project from a zoning standpoint first? You don't have to, okay. but it will help your application, right? So when you're going to do your one-stop application, so I was, what I was going to say is just big picture, just so we don't conflate federal and state, because there is a lot of overlap here. Although these are federal tax credits, so the federal government allocates a certain amount of money um, into the pool of LIHTC credits every year, but then it's up to the state to actually allocate those tax credits. So in the state of Massachusetts, DHCD is the agency that's tasked with allocating those. So they And is it competitive? It's very competitive. So for the nine, so they have a limited number of tax limited, credits and a lot of people who want those for, 9%, for their projects. Mm-hmm, for 9% tax credits, it's a competitive application process. And then 9% funds 70% of construction? Roughly speaking. Okay. Yeah. But the 4% are automatic? The 4% are theoretically automatic if you have... If you're funding at least 50% of your project with um, private activity bonds, then you're theoretically entitled to 4% tax credits. In Massachusetts, those even those can get a little bit competitive because the development market is so crowded. But there are certainly other states where they're struggling to use all of their you know, 4% tax credits that are available in a year, but not the case in Massachusetts. But the 9% application process goes through DHCD. You fill out your one-stop. 
it's a pretty comprehensive application. It's, a, it's about a thousand page binder yeah. <laughs> when it's Serious. all said and done. Are you putting these binders together in-house or do you outsource it to a third party? In-house, yeah. So if you're a developer that is trying to operate in this space, you would certainly need the expertise to be able to put together your own one-stop. I mean, I would say that there have been and probably are some consultants that are operating in this space that are, that are certainly helping certain companies over the hump on that because it is, it's a huge, huge um, sort of project to undertake. And DHCD, what they're looking at from my perspective, not speaking on behalf of DHCD, <laughs> but what they're looking at is, is your project, you know, financially feasible and have you done enough things that show that you have a readiness to proceed, right? So one of the things that would help you to show that you have a readiness to proceed and your project is financially feasible is if you've got your zoning approval, you've kind of done some of your preliminary work to figure out, you know, can I build what I want to build here? Is the neighborhood supportive of it or is the neighborhood going to, you know, put up some kind of a you know, argument to having this project built here. Um, and do you have site control, right? Because sometimes you may not at the time, you know, that you're putting in this application. So that's the biggest quandary to me is this chicken and an egg problem where site control, meaning you have the project, the property under contract, uh, that you control it. Under contract or purchased? So most of the time, the way these deals are structured, you don't actually purchase the the Closing doesn't actually happen until you already have your so tax it's a contingent award. deal. But, but, but to me, if I'm a seller, why would I allow a buyer to say I need to get my one stop done? I need to re- receive these uh, LIHTC credits, and then if all of that goes well in X number of months, years, mm-hmm. we can come back and meet you at a closing table. No, and then and then I can go through the entitlement process with the city, and may, I may or may not even. Or are you going through? You're going. You're Probably assuming that you're going that, that first. So yeah. so help us with that. Yeah. So it's. I would say a lot of the projects are new construction. So you may be looking at, a lot of the projects are also developments that are on land that was previously owned or is currently owned by the state. Okay, Um, so they're putting an RFP out and providing preference for folks who will pursue this process. Right, exactly. So it's you're not go you're not typically dealing with a lot of private sales in this. It happens, but I wouldn't say it's the typical. It's not the norm. Yeah, I would imagine the private sale wasn't viable with market rate dollars and sources and. Yeah, and and I'll say that's probably true for Massachusetts, but in some other markets that don't have you know sort of such a strong real estate market, there may very well be sellers who are, you know, mm. willing to wait because they just don't have another viable mm. offer. I don't know if we touched on this. Is there a sweet spot in terms of project size? In general, I would say very small projects. It's hard to make those work. Not impossible, but can be more challenging just because of economies of scale. There's a lot of cost that goes into managing these projects effectively. Putting together a thousand page binder. (laughs) Right. Applying for the numerous credits. Yep. Yeah. Applying for all of the credits. And then even, you know, once, once everything is done and and you've moved on to the operations phase, there's a lot of a heavy compliance burden associated with having a project that is, you know, restricted, has a a deed restriction due to the, the LIHTC's. The state has a strong interest in ensuring that you're operating this as, after they've given you these credits, that it indeed is serving needy people Mm -hmm. and and you're providing affordable housing. Yeah, and in fact, you've 
you've legally covenanted that you will so mm-hmm. and and recorded a use restriction attached to that property so i would say it's more than even a strong interest they have a right to enforce yeah. the affordability restriction so what's the typical time frame between when you identify a project mm-hmm. when you you know how long does it take to get those that 1000 page binder together mm-hmm. and then how long does it take for the Shovels government in the ground. yeah how long does it take for for the government to set hopefully approve your one stop so probably on average 2 to 3 years but it could certainly be less um if you have a particularly exciting project that's meeting an unmet need the city of boston has a really sort of focused interest right now in not just providing capital A affordable housing generally, but providing affordable housing to extremely low income individuals. So those would be characterized as individuals who are earning less than 30% of the area median income or AMI. So to the extent that your project involves, you know, more than just 10% of the required units for folks who are ELI, extremely low income, that could increase your chances. And I should say that DHCD puts out, um, just like every state, qualified allocation plan every two years. So that is the document um, that really speaks for itself and governs kind of what the requirements are and what makes your... So that's the rubric. That's what they're using to grade. Mm -hmm, Exactly. Two to three years is quite a gestation period. Yeah, certainly there have been projects that have been faster Quickly, and, yeah. and there have been projects that have taken longer. longer. <laughs> and again, going back to the size thing, so we're talking about projects between like what, 50 and 100? Yeah, I would say um, the sweet spot is probably 40 to 200 okay. units. Obviously, when you get into some of the higher numbers, it's easier to make some things work because, you know, you are realizing some NOI on these projects. Most in most cases. Um, but certainly there are a number of LIHTC projects that are built every year that are in the, you know, 40 to 60 unit range. I would say it's more rare to see smaller than 20, but it does happen. So let's say, I think it's no, nobody's shocked at the fact that we don't have enough affordable housing here. Mm-hmm. And there's clearly a lot of funds available, yep. but there's also clearly a lot of competition for those funds, if we call it that. Mm-hmm. Probably because there's so much demand for it. So, you know, if if the funds are available, let's build it. But it's also a lot of complexity and a lot of these lead times. So why do it? I think for a lot of the organizations that are operating in this space, it's, it's mission, right? Um, so it's not only about dollars and cents. I mean, particularly for the organizations that I've worked for, we're talking about people that are deeply committed to this community and to all of the communities that they serve. And there's a lot of good to be done. So yeah, I would say, you know, in addition to making financial sense, it's... Sorry, I didn't mean to make that sound so heartless no. around no. the holidays. <laughs> I just mean literally people that endeavor on in the development world sure. need to be paid as well. Oh, yeah. Because, you know, that's, that's their uh, life and blood, right? Yep. So if there's these huge lead times, yep. so it's almost as if it lends itself to the larger organizations. It's not just a, like I mean, I can Dan or Mark or I could just jump in and do one of these. I, and I think that's almost like a barrier to entry. Maybe. That's a good question. Yeah. I don't know that's if that's That's where true. I was going with I it. I think you could. I think yeah. we could get together and do this on a 40, 60 unit project. And I think the benefits just economically, the mission-driven part aside, 
Someone's going to tell you they're going to pay for 70% of your construction costs. Your rents from your tenants are going to be guaranteed and backed by the government, or at least a large percent of those rents. So, yeah, actually, so that was my other question. So are is the majority of these uh, affordable buildings that are being built, are they rental buildings or rental. are they sale buildings? Rental. All rental. All rental. There, at least for five years? Uh, there are some homeownership projects. Um, so, and then those have a separate deed restriction. But financially, those are more difficult to make work. So they are a little bit more rare, I would say, than rental projects. And the deed restriction on um, homeownership is like you can only, like when someone goes to sell that property, they're only allowed to realize a much smaller profit on the sale than the market would typically command. We did a deal with historic tax credits and we could not sell the, we couldn't sell them off for five years. So different types of tax credits have different compliance periods. Mm -hmm. And keep in mind that when making an application competitive, something that a developer might do would be agree to extend the use restriction period beyond 30 years. And then in Massachusetts, there are even some... So 30 ha- years is the gold standard, right? 30 That's years typical. is what's required for LIHTC. Traditionally? Yes, but historic tax credits and um, I think brownfields, which are not my area of expertise, so I shouldn't go <laughs> too far into that, but are, I think, a lesser period of time. And there are certain... Uh, funding sources that you may use in Massachusetts that could have a compliance period of up to 51 years. So maybe I'm oversimplifying this. The land acquisition, that's being funded by a tax credit? Well, so or is that you're, the always, you're always paying for it, right? Okay, we're <laughs> so, paying for it. Yeah, we're getting money. Well, the investor from, is paying for it. The well, investor, that's their tax credit. Yeah, the investor is making an investment into the single purpose entity. So at the end of the day, though, you as the developer, assuming you're the one who controls the single purpose entity that is the limited partner, but managing member of that entity, you are always the one who's writing the check and the wires are, you know, running through so you. So we're managing so, the bank account. Right. We're running uh, so it's that. very similar to a, a privately funded project that we do. Exactly. We raise capital yep. from investors. They give us the money. We put it into a bank account think and then it, we control it. Yeah. Think of it like your your own conventional exactly. home loan. You and I'm get trying a to loan, follow the cash flows. Yeah, you, exactly. You get a loan from your local neighborhood bank to buy your house. You cut the check every month to your mortgage company. So it's technically your money, but you've borrowed it from from someone else. And in terms of costs that I've, or or money that I've borrowed that needs to be repaid, Mm -hmm. there's also a a lender. Are there any lenders involved? A lot of lenders. Yeah. So you almost always have a construction lender involved and then also a permanent lender involved. And those may be the same entity. They could be two different entities. So they'll usually be a sizable construction phase loan that's going to help you, you know, fund, um, the construction, and then you'll convert that once the construction phase ends and you're, you know, into the operations phase into a permanent loan. And it's amortization period. Exactly. Yeah. And and oftentimes the terms of the loans that are available for these types of projects are more favorable than a conventional loan that you would just get if you were... Perfect. Now, does the syndicator, in addition to finding your investors, do they also help you find a lender as well? Is it syndicate or syndicator? Syndicator. Really? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, was, I was listening. <laughs> Where's that Where's button? That button? <laughs> <laughs> yes, syndicator. Okay. So I don't know that I could really speak to that. I mean, TCB is fortunate to have such an established portfolio that we 
you know, certainly have knowledge of most of the investors and lenders that are operating in this space. And I would say that, you know, that's not necessarily unique to TCB, but most companies that are operating in this space would sort of be generally aware of the type of lenders that are providing these loans. And some of them are are state entities. So some of them are state pools of money um, that are run through various state agencies. It's still a loan. It's not a grant. So there are, you know, terms for repayment of that loan. But like I said, often they're more favorable than what you would find in a in a traditional development. Okay. So we have our investors, we have our lender, we have what what does the developer bring? I feel like I haven't gotten <laughs> to that point yet. What is it what is the developer contributing? So I think expertise in how to navigate this entire process, right? So the developer is the one who's putting together the one stop. Um, one of the sort of key components for DHCD in analyzing your one stop and determining whether or not they want to provide you with a tax credit reservation, given all of the competition, is the track record of that developer. So, you know, we're talking about all of this in simplified terms, you know, for purposes of fitting it into one podcast episode. But just like any area of of development, it's incredibly complex. So the developer brings with them sort of the expertise and the weight of, you know, so many years in this industry. And I will tell you, even though I have, you know, seven years in the industry, every time I close a deal, something surprises me, right? There's always something. um, And I think any attorney that works in this space would say the same. There's something unique about every single deal because part of um, what goes along with all of those different sources of funding that I was talking about are just added complexity from the layering of all of those subsidies, right? So if you take subsidy to fund your project from 12 different sources, then you have 12 different things that you need to comply with, some of which are the same and overlapping, others of which might be different. So on any given project, you may have, you know, five different deed restrictions. They may get compiled into one single document, but there, you know, you may have a certain restriction that lasts 30 years, one that's 40, one that's 51, all on the same project. And you may have different types of subsidy that apply only to, you know, 10 of your units are MRVP units. And then they have, you know, an additional layer of complexity. Sorry, what's MRVP? The Massachusetts Rental Voucher Program. So it's one of those sort of different programs that I was alluding it's to like earlier. like a Section 8 voucher It's, it's similar, but but but, ooh, but a state. Sorry, I just yeah, kicked okay. the table there. <laughs> Boom, sound effects. <laughs> <laughs> no so budget okay. for sound effects. So a similar, like, uh, a similar voucher that most... Sure. Not all projects will get them, but like when you're staring at your budget, say you get your, um, you know, 4% or 9% tax credit allocation, that's not going to get you all the way there, right? So there's mm-hmm. going to be gaps in your your financing and you're going to have to figure out how am I going to fill these? So how those often get filled is through different forms of subsidy, either through the federal government or through the state government. So it's not a, it's not a voucher like that uh, a tenant would... It is, yeah. Oh, it is, okay. Mm-hmm, but it, it would have to be allocated in most cases through uh, the, the developer who's going to be managing gotcha. the project, right? So the benefits of the tax credit are not accrued all at once. It's over a period of time. Ten, ten years, ten yeah. Ten years. And so how does how does that work? 
So the the sort of Bible of a tax credit deal when it comes to the investor perspective is your limited partnership agreement or operating agreement. So it's really the same thing. If you have a limited partnership, you have a limited partnership agreement. If you have an LLC, you have an operating agreement. So this is a big, long document that no one would ever want to read except for me. (laughs) (laughs) Um, (laughs) Which is sort of all of the agreements of... Do you really read it or do you just do like control F and look for keywords? (laughs) I read the entire thing. Sorry. (laughs) And that is true. I'm notorious for that. (laughs) I find it interesting. I mean, I find words to be interesting and compelling, and I like to make things as precise as I can possibly make them. I'm probably unique in that, uh, in this space. I listen to audiobooks if that tells you anything (laughs) about my style. Which is why you didn't become a transactional attorney. Bingo. Which is fine. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. So that document will lay out all of the terms of the agreement between the limited partner, which is the investor partner, and the general partner, which is your single-purpose entity, right? So that is sometimes hundreds of pages, goes into sort of all of the details about when all of your capital calls are going to come in, right? So there'll be certain milestones that are set. And once you meet those milestones to the satisfaction of your investor, they'll give you a portion of your investment. So unfortunately, it's not that, you know, on day one, you you enter into the partnership and you get the full um, tax credit award. So it's basically like uh, a more detailed construction draw, if we could, yeah, uh, you know, yeah, it goes into that a little bit. Sure, it goes into a lot of detail about you know what will happen if you don't comply, right? Because if you, as the developer, and this sort of goes back to your earlier question about like what is the developer bringing to the table, if you, as the developer, and I'm saying developer in this context, assuming that the developer is also going to continue to manage and own the the project, right? Not that you're just uh, playing the role of developer and then stepping out, but assuming that, then you are responsible for ensuring the compliance of the project for the entire, you know, for for the investors' purposes, what they care about is, you know, first 11 years. Compliance, what you mean by that is more so that the tenants are meeting all of those affordability Right. So you have to do recertifications on an annual basis, right? So if you've got a 100-unit project, I'll make this really simple. You've got a 100-unit project. Uh, 50 of the units are supposed to be for 30% AMI folks, and 50 of the units are supposed to be for 60% AMI folks. If you don't keep up with that, and then, you know, we find out in year five that, you know, seven of those units have been rented to people who are 200% AMI, that's a problem. And you could be subject to recapture on those tax credits. And the investor cares about that because that impacts them. Oh, the original investor who's... Oh, they're in the project for the entire... That entire... 10 years? uh, Usually, it's contemplated that they'll be in the project for 15 years. But the sort of most important part of that is the first 10 years when the tax credits are flowing. And I feel like I should add just to not leave a a hanging chad out there if that's the right (laughs) expression. Is that an expression? Okay. That's a good Um, throwback. I like that. We we just had an election swing by one vote in Boston. So hanging chads, that's real. It's a real thing. So someone who, in a typical LIHTC project, someone who is originally in a 30% unit, it's not that if next year they start making 31% 
they're kicked out. They can go all the way up to 140% of 30% AMI and still con- be considered like a qualifying occupant of that unit. So, so they could go to 42, essentially. Yeah. If you're that good at math, I believe you. I, I think don't so. know. That was okay. another 12. You said 140. <laughs> so. Jeez. What? Three times four is 12 and just add a couple zeros. <laughs> Boom. That's we can get a fact check. Okay, that. Right. good. So that was my other question, Sounds actually. Right. So you already yeah. took the words out of my mouth. I was wondering kind of what if yeah. the individual tenants kind of have sure. fluctuations. Yeah, sure. so they can. there's room for them, you know, to be able to stay, you know, in the project and you stay in compliance up to 140%. That's good. Yeah. It doesn't create some weird incentives otherwise, yes. right? Yeah. Right. Like, yeah, they've thought of Dan, that. Dan, you've got a raise. Who'd you like to... Pr- no, no, <laughs> yeah, I will not take lose that. My I'm house. Gonna, I will lose my not house. Take manager. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So they've they've accounted for that and that's a, um, you know, a relatively generous um, spread that folks can, you know, have some income growth, sure. but we, we can still kind of ensure that the, the folks that need this housing are the ones that are accessing it. It must be a tough conversation. Conversation. Hey, you know, you went a little over, you're doing very well. You know, we can either, can they bump up to like a higher AMI unit if one's available? Or do you really have to like evict them, you know? like Well, if you want to get deep into the weeds, then if you have a compliance problem because someone has gone. That's such a terrible <laughs> term. Sorry, you've become a compliance problem. Well, well, I guess that's a good thing though. Yeah. Because that means that they're making more money yep. and then they're they're doing better right. with their lives yeah. and they're bettering their lives and they're bettering yeah. everyone around them. So you kind of yes. want them to grow right. and ultimately move out yeah. and find something yes. else. And yes. that's kind of the goal. Right. Yes. Yeah, like, that's a good point. Yeah. I mean, I think there has to be a cutoff at some point, right? So I think 140% of where they previously were is you know, generally a, a relatively fair way to, you know, allow someone to continue to grow without having this horrible cliff effect, but, um, you know, ensure that that housing sort of re- continues to be available to the folks who who truly need it. Well, now here's the other question that I have, and this is kind of getting even deeper into the weeds, but out of, so say you have a hundred unit building and 50 of the units are 30%. Yep. AMI, what percentage of those people stay for a very, very long time versus ultimately move out and move on? Uh, you know, that would be a, a question better asked property management. I can say like anecdotally, we do have some folks that stay, you know, in our properties for 20 years. Okay. And then there's also folks that you know, are there for a year or two and move on. But I, I would say that that's kind of the spectrum. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think it's probably like a parabola, right? And people are, it sort of tend to be in the middle. I mean, the number of folks that are there for only a year or two is probably a relatively small number. And then the number of folks that are there for 20 plus years is probably also a relatively small number. But in the middle, I think there's probably more consensus around, I don't know, five to 10 years. I don't know what the average for people who are renting, you know, to stay in an apartment anyway, but Question for you. Yes. <laughs> development fee. Yes. Another good reason that someone who is, you know, uh, a developer might look to to provide or build affordable housing, you can charge a development fee. Yes. Is that capped? It's capped. What? How much can you charge? <laughs> it, so, <laughs> so I think that that varies depending on the market that you're working in and depending on the different sources that you're using, right? So, 
where HUD is involved, there's a cap on the amount that you could charge for development fee, and they may be involved as, you know, one of your lenders at the FHA may be insuring one of your loans. I think in general, a reasonable development fee is expected and certainly allowed. Like 40% of construction <laughs> costs, they're about 50. No. 12 to 15%. It could it could be as low as six percent oh, in man. some deals. Yeah. yeah, I think six percent. And and some of my colleagues that are in the finance department might be rolling their eyes right now if I'm wrong. Mm-hmm. But we can yeah. fact check okay. this. But I think I think that a, around six percent is the so it's a is the lowest. It's a percentage of, of construction costs. Okay. TDC. Yeah. Total development costs. Yes. Okay. And it so needs to be a reasonable total development. So is that including acquisition? Well, TDC. You said construction costs, comma. A TDC is that, is different, that, right? Like are those part, different? Yeah, they are. Yeah. Total total development costs is everything. Your soft costs, is acquisition, fees. Oh, okay. total development, construction yeah. costs, or construction costs. So yeah. if it's five percent of TDC, I'm feeling much better. Yes. There you go. Okay. Yeah. Good. So that's one way a I developer. Think someone fact checked me on that. Okay. Who works no in finance? <laughs> so, so the developer. So, so the if we'll call it incentive. So the developer who has the experience and the connections and the know how to make these projects happen. Yep. Because they're not easy to do fills out the thousand one page thing and they're getting compensated that way. Yeah, I think you might have been going in the same direction, Mark. So now you're getting these rents, the building's performing. Yep. What is the developer getting? What are the other players getting? Like the bank's going to get their debt service. Yep. That's a fixed term amortized. Yep. Who else is getting a piece of the the pie, if so we'll call it? So that's the point that the tax credits would start to flow to the investor limited partner. So they would be able to start realizing, you know, the benefit of their investment at the point that you've placed the project in service and there are actually folks living in the building. The property management agent is... Can you explain that a little more? Like the tax credits at that point go to them? I thought... Yeah, I thought my that they weren't getting like anything. It's a donation. You had a great tax year and you owe a million dollars in tax liability mm-hmm. and you did this project so you get to... No. So they're going to spread out their tax credits probably over like a 10-year okay. period and... If you start construction in 2019, depending on whether you're talking about a rehab, an occupied rehab, which tends to take the longest amount of time because you're dealing with, you know, folks being in the building Mm -hmm. while you're doing the rehab or a new construction project. And depending on the complexity of the construction, you could have anywhere from, you know, a 12 to 24 month construction period conceivably. And the tax credits won't start to flow until you've placed the building in service. And this is the dumbest question today, but 4% 4% tax credit, 4% of what? <laughs> <laughs> so the way that, so I think that the way that the 4% and 9% tax credit is referred to to folks that are not um, in the affordable housing world may be a little bit misleading because you want to tie it to, yes, you're going to get back 4% of your total development costs or you're going to get back 9%. You know, it's not tied in that way. I mean, the 4% tax credit is worth less uh, than the 9% tax credit. So what will happen is the investor will offer you basically cents on the dollar for loss that you're giving to them. So if you're giving them a dollar of losses on a 9% deal, depending on where the market is, they may offer you nine in, in Boston, we're talking about, they may offer you not anywhere from 97 cents to a dollar and six cents dollar for dollar loss to investment, right? If you're talking about a 4% deal, it's it's a much lower amount. 
and what they're going to get over that 15 years that the building is operational. Is losses. Are, are, are lo- they're going to realize those losses. Yep. And they're going to, so we're talking about, when we talk about the typical tax credit investor, we're talking about a huge, you know, corporation that's been around for years and years is going to continue to be around for years and years. And they're thinking about tax liability, not just now, but 10 years from now, 20 years from now, and trying to come up with ways to offset. So we're talking about very profitable companies that are sort of in business for the long term. Have you guys heard of the term donor advised funds? Nope. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I was going to bring that up because I read something, I've been reading something recently, and I think it's been on a couple of those Netflix shows, but basically the really wealthy folks are getting the charitable contribution right off, but they're putting them into funds that don't have to distribute with any time period, mm-hmm. but they're still getting the write-off. But these funds are just building up over time and there's no requirement from the government uh. to like actually spend the money. But I wasn't sure if a donor-advised fund might be a source for another tax credit. So I wasn't sure if you've I seen don't that. I think so, but I can't say as I'm an expert on donor-advised funds. I mean, I think that there's, you know, a newer concept that was created by the tax code reform uh, in 2017, which is opportunity zones, which is mm. a, a sort of totally different um, and very content-rich topic, which sounds somewhat similar to what you're describing. However, there's a requirement that you do spend down the funds and there's a sunset provision um, associated with that, which I think is a date certain in 2026 or Mm. 2027. Yeah, you get the tax benefits the longer you hold the asset. Actually, that's a good question. Do you see a lot of demand in the opportunity zones? Have people been focusing their projects in those areas or does it not really make a difference? I will speak game? only to, you know, my limited experience um, in the Boston market, not so much. Um, I think there was a lot of kind of high hopes around opportunity zones and it's been a little bit of a challenge to figure out how to make it work in the affordable housing context. Not that it hasn't worked in other contexts because opportunity zone investments are not limited just to, you know, development of affordable housing. So we've gone through the whole process. Yes. The building is now leased up. Yes. It's cash flowing. Yeah. There's money we coming. Hope. We hope. Yeah. We hope. There's money coming in. Yep. The investors are realizing their losses yep. every year for 15 years. Mm-hmm. Now at the end of Every month, every quarter, I don't know. The net profit, how does that get distributed? So that's another thing that would be contained in our Bible of the limited partnership (laughs) agreement or operating agreement, right? So there'll be a cash flow waterfall, um, which dictates if there is cash flow coming out of that project, exactly how that cash flow is to be allocated. Gotcha. Yeah. So, and just to sort of close the loop on um, the earlier topic, just because the um, investor limited partner owns 99.99% of the project does not necessarily have to mean that they receive 99.99% of cash flow. So those two things are can be divorced from sure. each other. Is there a typical split, if you will? The typical cash flow waterfall has probably 12 different steps in it, which is why it's called a waterfall. So so there are certain, as opposed to just a split. Basically, who's getting fed first versus who's getting fed last. Exactly, yes. First to the, you know, principal of this loan, second to the principal of this loan, third to pay down any deferred developer fee, et cetera, et cetera. It's like layered subordinations almost. (laughs) Yeah. Crazy. Yeah, yeah. It gets complex. Interesting. So what happens after 30 years? The deed restriction is lifted. 
In some cases. In some cases. Yeah. So, so, so if it, if and when the deed restriction does get lifted, yep. and assuming that you as the developer still own the retain project. control yep. and own the project, yeah. what typically happens? Does the developer convert the building to market rate? Does the developer sell a building? How, how, I'm going to is- say something that will blow your mind. Ready? Ready. Resyndication. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, so basically, you go. You, you go basically. All, you, you go all through the process all over again. Because because uh, assuming after thirty years, there's a lot of equity in the building. Yeah. And you re- technically quote unquote refinance, sure. bring more investors in yep. that need more tax credits. Yep. There is something called sort of an an anti churning rule, right? Which means that you as the developer cannot more often then um, got to stop talking with my hands if I'm going to be on a podcast. I keep punching the microphone. So no one warned me about that. You cannot uh, resyndicate your own project twice within a 10-year period, right? So this is designed to prevent people from sort of abusing the system and saying like, well, I'll just keep, you know, redoing the same project over and over again, realizing, you know, developer fee over and over again and, and kind of churning the same tax credits through the same project. Um, so with that caveat, but say you've made it the full 30 years, you're outside of the anti-churning requirement, you could theoretically resyndicate that project with a new investor, theoretically. After 30 years, the building needs some updates and probably needs to be rehabbed. So if you're talking about a project that's owned by an affordable housing developer, a nonprofit entity like TCB, they, you know, we have an interest in seeing that that project remains affordable, you know, in perpetuity forever. So it's it's relatively unlikely that we would sell it. But if it was had passed hands, you know, changed hands at some point and, and fallen into the hands of someone who was more market rate oriented, certainly there could be a time when they would just convert them to market rate units. In the state of Massachusetts, there are certain requirements when a use restriction is expiring and you need to make sure DHCD is aware of that, you know, fact 40T. Is there a right of first refusal? Oftentimes, yeah. Oftentimes that's something that's negotiated um, heavily during the phase of negotiating your LPA. Yeah. But in theory, you could, a developer, because you have mentioned a couple times, if you hold on to it. So if you choose not to hold on to it, you could sell it to another entity? You could. Any, okay. Yeah. But, Does that, but Is that typical? So it would be hard during the compliance period. You would have to sell it, you know, subject to all of the deed restrictions. Mm-hmm. Sure. So the value of that project during the deed restrictions period is probably you know, comparatively much lower to what it would be if it were an unrestricted market rate property. It does happen um, sometimes that, you know, for whatever reason, a certain developer is getting out of that market and they sell it to another, you know, affordable housing developer. And there's no resyndication at that point. They just take over, you know, kind of stand in the shoes of the exiting um, single purpose entity. But after that, compliance period, all applicable compliance periods have expired. It's theoretically possible that it could be converted to market rate units, not without some, you know, due diligence, but. So can we use a, like some round numbers and just do a recap? Because this is some complex stuff. <laughs> so let's use a 9% tax credit deal. Let's say we have a qualified basis of a million dollars. So the qualified costs typically exclude environmental costs. Yeah, so the eligible basis is typically 
from the total development cost, whatever is depreciable is, mm. is you know, can be put into the eligible basis. So that's going to be your construction costs, architect. Everything but the land, right? Uh, well, land the and land, environmental cleanup. Interest on your permanent loans, application fees, those types of things that are that are not um, depreciable can't be included so in eligible have, basis. We have this tax credit deal of a million dollars of qualified funds, and I should qualify myself that I just Googled this, so I cheated. But <laughs> I thought you were just reading email. I was like, wow, he's really disinterested in what I'm saying. No, I was just trying to <laughs> understand myself. I'm sorry. Sorry. So we get a 9% deal, a million dollars of qualified funds. 9% is 90 grand paid each year over 10 years. Thus, a $900,000 benefit to that investor. For a million dollars. For a million dollars. Yeah, right. But that doesn't exactly equate. This is, I think, what I was trying, what I was yeah. perhaps Probably ineloquently was reading, yeah. trying to say like the 90, earlier. Like the 97 exactly. to 1 to 06 yes. or whatever. Yeah, so sure. that's a great example for helping folks, you know, to understand theoretically how it works. In the world, it doesn't mean that what they will invest is 90 cents for every dollar of losses. Mm-hmm. We're doing a little bit better than that um, in, in the Massachusetts market. Yeah. But yes, that's... Okay. So in theory, you're saying they could invest like a dollar ten. Uh, sorry, a hundred yeah. one point one million, mm-hmm. but they only get a million in. Yeah, that'd be a great. That'd be a great. I mean, that would be a dollar ten would be an amazing. All right, one hundred six um, was the <laughs> highest. So they might invest. Who who sets that number? Is it just a market driven number? Market driven number. So we'll typically put out an RFP um, when we're looking for an investor. We'll get you know responses from a number of different investors. They'll propose you know. Oh, 97 cents on the dollar, 98 cents on the dollar. And there may be, you know, where two investors are close, other factors, you know, other than just price. But price is certainly probably the most important thing when determining who your investor is going to be. And it can fluctuate, right? So during the tax reform, there was a period of time where it looked like private activity bonds or 4% tax credits were going to go away. And so pricing went completely haywire and tanked and everyone was having a lot of angst and thinking like if you were trying to close a deal, if you recall the tax reform sort of got rammed in at the end of the year. And if you were trying to close a deal the end of that year, a lot of people experienced a lot of angst over that because there was so much uncertainty in the market. So the amount that you're getting on uh, from your investor per dollar of loss is certainly fluctuates depending on the market. But I would say it's been relatively stable for the last couple of years. So they had the 4% coming out and then last minute they... Saved it. Punched it back in. Yeah. That's and we nice. all went... That's good. <gasps> and the market's normalized again. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it Crazy. Was. I didn't know that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, if you're not... If you weren't in the industry, it wasn't something that you'd be following, but it was a, it was a dark time to be in affordable housing. <laughs> oh, we were all like, we got to learn something new. Like, we're not going to have a job anymore because 9% tax credits are so competitive that the majority of deals are 4% deals. So if suddenly all 4% deals went away, you would need a lot less lawyers. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> How many are you doing? Oh, you you said your company you work for yep. does deals all the way to Chicago. All the way to Chicago and all the way as south as the Carolinas. Oh, wow. Yeah, as far so you south have a pretty broad. Pretty big portfolio. Yeah. yeah. Well, Dan and Ray have had a great year financially. So if you need uh, tax credit investors... <laughs> These We're guys looking. are looking to pay he less taxes. I actually say Mark 10. might have done better. Yeah. Yeah. So, <laughs> I don't think either uh, of us are that big. <laughs> <laughs> anyway. What's the average size? 
if somebody is going to um, contribute a, a tax credit. You mean what? Dollar amount? Like an, like investor, an investor. Yeah. Oh. Uh, so, so that would be tied to like the total development costs, right? And the number of units because your eligible basis determines kind of how many tax credits you can get for that project, right? So the bigger the project, the more tax, the more eligible basis you'll generate and then the more tax credits that you'll be able to realize. And sure. part of the reason when you submit your one-stop to DHCD that you have to have so many details in there about sources and uses and, you know, projected sort of financing is because they need to know, you know, how many tax credits are you going to generate with a reasonable amount of certainty um, so that there's enough I meant on the flip side, on the side, the the ones giving the money. So it's, yeah. Like a million dollars is like the... We have one investor yeah. on every project. I see. So they invest the full amount, the full eligible basis. I see. Yeah. So whatever, you know, you say our TDC is going to be whatever, 75 million. And, um, you know, we think that's going to generate whatever amount of tax credits. If they agree to be your investor, they're in for that. And it's the syndicator amount. that publishes these things and looks for the, to connect the projects. You don't have to, to use the syndicator. No. Yeah. So if you're sort of a, a known commodity in this uh, industry, then you could be interfacing directly with various investors. You, you know, through the RFP process, learn about, you know, what they would be willing to offer you specific to that deal. You enter into an LOI with the investor before you ever enter into the LPA or the operating agreement. Um, so a lot of those things are sort of just determined by the market. Is there one state you're doing a lot more deals in right now than other? Another? Massachusetts. <laughs> so I, I have Massachusetts on the brain because the deals that I've been working on lately have mm-hmm. been in Massachusetts. But no, I think in general, uh, it can be sometimes easier to finance projects around large financial centers because there tends to be you know, cities that have resources that are available to you to kind of close some of those funding gaps. But that doesn't hasn't limited TCB in the past to just urban centers. Nice. Yeah. Quick lightning round. Uh-oh. You ready? Yeah. Uh, Netflix or Disney streaming? Netflix. Oh. Oh, wow. This is... This it just is, came uh, out of... <laughs> 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 We're just getting very affordable excited. housing. <laughs> Favorite ne- source? <laughs> Catnip. <laughs> Favorite wait, s- wait a minute. Wait a minute. You're not even following your own rules. Oh, wait. Lightning round. Yeah. Lightning round. <laughs> I forgot we weren't doing overrated, underrated. Okay. Messing everyone up. No. You've been thinking about this, though. It's Netflix. You can't watch true crime on Disney streaming. That's true. I do like, favorite true crime podcast? To Live and Die in LA. Oh, really? A thousand times better than Serial. I was screaming during episode 12. People on the T did not appreciate that. (laughs) Last one, Dan Ray. He's afraid. Yeah. Cats or dogs? Oh. Dogs. Sorry, cats. Okay. New Hampshire, Massachusetts. Obviously, Massachusetts. Good answer. Sorry. <laughs> Sorry, Ray. City living or suburban living? City. All good answers. <laughs> we really appreciate all your time and sharing Absolutely. your expertise. Yeah. So thanks, everybody, for listening, if subscribing. People, if people want to get in touch. Yes. Yeah, sure. Uh, email if, Mark. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the <Awesome>. communitybuilders.com. <laughs> no, sure. People can get in touch. I don't know what do people typically do to give do they website say their, Instagram Oh okay um TCB is tcbinc.org 
I think my contact information is generally available there to reach me. Great. Carrie, it's been great. Yeah. Thank you so much. It's been great, guys. Thanks yeah. for having me. Cheers. Happy Bye. holidays, everyone. Yeah. Mm-hmm.